What causes us to be poor listeners? You see a bullet point list there. Let me explain to you a little bit about what I've observed in myself being a poor listener and actually sitting with poor listeners. Um, what causes us to be poor listeners? Impatience. Our inability to appreciate the present. That's a definition of what impatience is. Or driven by your agenda. So you, you've ever been in that, have you ever been in that conversation where you're, you're in there and supposedly you're listening, but really you've got an agenda to get done in that conversation. And so you're not totally really listening to that person because you're wrestling with your own agenda getting across in the conversation. Or tiredness. You know, I, I, uh, I, we've gotten out of those stages. I'm glad for you to have the, the children's books. We've gotten out of the younger stages, the, the, the wee little ones waking up in the middle of the night, and then you get to work and you're exhausted the whole day. And so yeah, you're tired, and therefore it makes it hard to hear what the other person's saying. Hard to track with it when you're exhausted. So, you know, it's a good reason for some of us to take notes. <laughs> I take notes uh, some days because I'm exhausted. And so what you said to me 10 minutes ago, I love you, but I don't remember what you said. <laughs> and so if I'm supposed to remember the whole thing, I'm not going to remember what you said 10 minutes and 20 minutes and 30 minutes ago. And supposedly I'm supposed to piece that all together and give you some kind of guidance. <laughs> So possibly taking notes, but tiredness gets in the way of us being uh, a good listener. What else contributes to us being poor listeners? Distractions. So maybe you're in an environment where there's a lot of distractions. So if you were in my office, uh, I'm in an office where there's glass windows and there's a couch uh, in in the office right across from me. So you sit down there. Nobody can see you because you're sitting on the couch. But I can see into the main lobby where the secretary is. And sometimes, you know, our, our staff are mostly... You know, most of the time, 20, 30-year-old guys, we've got a younger staff, and sometimes the guys are out there kind of hooping it up in front of the secretary's desk. <laughs> They're laughing and joking. I got somebody crying on the couch. <laughs> so yeah, I, I can be distracted by what's going on in front of me <laughs> because it's going on just outside of my office. And I'm wanting to stand up and say, guys, God, I'm trying to help somebody here. <laughs> or, you know, d- d- distracted because I just went through something really hard. You ever been in that conversation with your spouse? It's a difficult conversation. And then for me, we live across the street from the church. I walk two minutes across the street to the church, and then I go to a counseling session. And, and it's a difficult conversation with the counselee. And yet, where was my heart? It's still back in my conversation with my wife. Even in the middle of the session, I'm thinking, oh, you got to catch up here. Uh, That was a really hard conversation, and yet my heart's back there at home because that was so hard. And so I I, got to get myself tuned into, and you you know, the things you can't say to your counselee. I'm not really listening to you because I'm back there still. (laughs) But I'm trying to catch up, so keep talking. I'll be with you in just a second. And thinking about it. So, distractions around you, uh, maybe you're easily distractible uh, overall. Or zoning out, you're not focused. Uh, So you you think about something else, even if it's just for a moment, or interrupting. You know, I'm I'm an extrovert, external processor, I like to talk. So if you're having a conversation with me, I've had a bad habit for years where I, I, I will jump in in the middle of your sentence. I gotta pull back. 
And, and, and I'm not showing that I'm being patient and listening to you if I'm interrupting what you're saying uh, overall. Qualities of a bad listener. Now, you need to be humble enough to ask a person to repeat themselves if you miss something, especially if it's an important part of the conversation. But you can't do that too much. <laughs> the third time you say, can you repeat that again? It's not going to go over too well because they clearly understand that you're not paying attention to them. A biblical picture of a bad listener is the proverbial fool. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in listening to prepare a response. Oh, sorry, only in listening and expressing their own opinion. Proverbs 8, 2. If, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Proverbs 18, 13. Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Proverbs 29, 20. So here, the biblical picture of a fool, what is it? One who does not listen or understand, but speaks too quickly. He's impulsive. He answers before he hears. He doesn't take time to hear and then speak. In 18.2, you saw there, the fool finds pleasure only in saying what he or she wants to say. You see 18.13, because of his impulsive speech, he lacks understanding. He's deemed foolish and shameful, as one commentator said. He's stupid and a disgrace. Contrast that with James. What does James say? Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak. You hear that? Quick to hear and slow to speak. The exact opposite of the proverbial fool. James' encouragement is to be the exact opposite to be quick to hear and slow to speak. So, okay, a good listener. You see my list there, a good listener. Being fully present. You know, the ability to fully engage in the moment. That means I'm focused. I'm not distracted. I'm staying engaged, which is hard work. You know, if you've got to track with someone on a long conversation, to stick with it for the whole time requires work out of you. Listen for listening. Not listening just so you could respond. <laughs> you know, you're listening to understand and show care. You're not listening to prepare a response or to put forth your agenda. You want to listen much more than you speak. I mean, I, I had to grow into this a lot of becoming a counselor. <laughs> I'm used to like being able to talk a lot, being able to say a lot of things. But to discipline myself to listen a lot more than I ever say anything, that requires a lot out of me. Eye contact and squarely facing a person. So if I'm sitting across from you, I want to look right at you. <laughs> now, you, you know, you can't stare at someone in a conversation. That becomes a little too intense. And our eye movement conveys the intensity. So we look away when the it becomes a little too intense in terms of conversation. But in general, you know, you want to look at someone. So if you have the little wee ones, you're having a direct conversation with a little kid, you know, what do they do? They're just kind of looking around everywhere instead of looking at you. And ironically, I remember with my little kids, I'd even hold their head, and then their eyes would still be moving around. <laughs> they can't even look at me even when I'm holding their head. Well, when we're facing them, we want to squarely face them. You know, open posture, looking at a person. Now, interestingly, it's important, though, to recognize that there's cultural differences. 
So in, in some cultures, direct eye contact is a sign of disrespect. So you, you, you can't stare them right in the face. Or, you know, a lack of eye contact communicates something. So I can't tell you how many times I've been in a first session with an adulterer who can't look at me because they're so ashamed. Often there's usually a point with someone who's coming in with deep sexual sin like that, and I'm in a conversation with them that I want to communicate God's forgiveness. And the last time this happened, and I said to an adulterer, look up at me, because I wanted to tell them about God's forgiveness. And she shook her head and said, no, I can't look at you. I'm too ashamed of what I did. So eye contact, eye contact matters. Uh, open posture and uh, eye, eye, squarely face a person and eye contact. Active body language uh, shows that you're engaged and attentive with your active body language. So open posture, relaxed rather than closed and squarely facing the person. And even you know, if you observe me in a conversation, you'd see oftentimes I'm on the edge of my chair and even leaning forward because I'm really into the conversation. I'm really digging what's going on here. I want to understand what's going on versus like sitting back, closed posture. I'm one of those pillow grabbers, you know, pillow on the couch. Grab the pillow, squeeze it, close up. This doesn't look like I'm pretty open to the conversation. No, it does it. <laughs> Not in agreement and say, uh-huh. All the little verbal bridges that help you to know that I'm paying attention. And then Patience. You don't interrupt and give the person a chance to finish what they're saying at the moment or over the course of a conversation, giving them a chance to work through the conversation with you rather than speaking in too soon. You know, I have a lot of people who will observe what I'm doing. They co-counsel or students work with me in being advocates for people that we're helping. And if they sit in a session, I've heard people comment, I wouldn't have waited as long as you did. I would have said something sooner. Okay, practical application. You ready? Here we go. How good of a listener are you? Ah, we're going to put it on you now. <laughs> okay, here's the scale. Scale of 1 to 10. 10, I'm the best listener in the entire universe. Not just the planet, but the universe. <laughs> 1, I'm the worst listener on the planet. Okay, go ahead and get a number in your mind. Get a number in your mind if you need to. Write it down. Here's what I want you to do with it. I want you to think of someone who knows you really well. For some of you, it's a spouse. For some of you, it's your roommate or best friend. Some of you, it's a parent. And I want you to go to them and give them that same scale and ask them what they think about your listening abilities. Now, only do this if you're humble enough to receive that response. Because some of you are going to hear, oh, you're a four. <laughs> and you had marked down on your page, I'm an eight. <laughs> but if you're willing to actually have the conversation that follows, which is going to be, oh, honey, why did you rank me as a four? I thought I was an eight. And the conversation that's going to come right afterwards is going to instruct you on why you and how you need to grow as a listener. You know, the last time I had this conversation with my wife, she then pulled out her phone 
and said, you're too distracted by the phone. <laughs> and I could picture those moments where she had said, you know, Abe's ready to go to bed. He wants to say goodnight to you. And she comes down to look and where I am, and I'm middle of the stairs looking at my phone. <laughs> I'm thinking, uh-oh, I'm caught again I'm with the phone. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, uh, technology, all kinds of other reasons where we end up getting distracted rather than being focused and listening and paying attention. So consider, how do you need to grow as a listener? Do that simple test. <laughs> Take some time and ask someone today or this week. And I think you'll find it helps us to grow in understanding the ways that we are poor listeners and thinking through how we need to grow in the skill of listening. And we all want this, don't we? We want to be better listeners because that helps us help other people. It helps us have better relationships. It helps us overall. So a little bit about now the biblical basis for understanding and knowing. What is the biblical basis for understanding and getting to know someone? Again, Proverbs. How much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. Proverbs 16, 16. Those with insight into a matter find prosperity. Blessed are those who trust Yahweh, Proverbs 16, 20. Insight is the fountain of life for him who has it, but the discipline of fools is folly, Proverbs 16, 22. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his own opinion, Proverbs 18, 2. Whoever gets sense loves his own soul. He who keeps understanding will discover good. Proverbs 19.8. From these verses, we see that understanding and insight is something that is more valuable than gold. 16.16 is something that brings prosperity. 16.20 is the fountain of life. 16.22 and allows a person to discover good. 19.8. Uh, the purpose of a man's heart are deep waters, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Proverbs 20, verse 5. So here in Proverbs 20, verse 5, it, it takes a man of understanding, a wise person, to draw out the purpose of the heart. So much like a bucket that we lower into a well to draw the water out of the bottom of the well, I need to be prepared to ask the questions that draw someone out. To help them to think through what is their heart, what's going on in their heart. But that means I need to be able to step in and ask those kind of questions and be patient and listen and help that person to open up. Now, Andrew is one of our former lay elders, and there was a young guy who was trying to make a major life decision. And he was going around and seeking counsel from a number of different people in the church. He was sorting through this major life decision. And I went to him after the conversation, and I said, how's it going? And he said, you know, the most helpful conversation was with Andrew. I said, oh, okay. Well, tell me about that. And he just described how Andrew drew him out and, and ended up drawing out things that he hadn't been thinking through. So I went to Andrew and said, Andrew, what'd you do? <laughs> and he said, I didn't tell him what to do. I actually didn't give him any advice. I just spent the whole hour asking him questions to draw him out. Well done, Andrew. Well done. He reflected right there a Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 5 mentality. 
where I, I'm not, like most people, ready to come and give you my advice. I'm here to draw out your heart and help you to see what's going on in your own heart. It takes a wise counselor, a wise friend, a wise parent, a wise roommate to draw out the deep and profound things in the heart. Now, Christ, as an example for us, he, he, he is an example of one who understands and sympathizes. Hebrews chapter 4. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Let's think through these verses a little bit. See there in verse 15, Jesus is our great high priest. Now, I hate double negatives, even if they're in the Bible. <laughs> what do we have here in terms of double negative? Do We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us. Okay, I'm going to flip it around. Positively, what, what does that mean? We do have a high priest who can sympathize with us. Praise God. <laughs> What's Christ sympathizing? What's well, it Paul Tripp from Instruments? He says, the word sympathy used here literally means to be touched by what has touched someone else or to be moved by what has moved someone else. This is more than pity where we feel sorry for a person in a tough situation. This is understanding what it's like to be in that circumstance. Christ is able to sympathize with our human experience because he was tempted in every respect as we are and yet without sin. He experienced our human temptations just as we do. That means he struggled with hunger and anger and greed and the list goes on and on. He was tempted in the same way as us. And he was able to face them without sinning. He was tempted because he was human. He was like us. And because he gets, he was like us, he gets it. He knows what we've been through. He gets what we're going through so he can sympathize. Because he understands what it means to face temptation, he can sympathize with what we're going through. Jesus understands, in fact, the full force of the temptation in a way that we never will. Why is that? Well, Leon Morse explains this to us. He says, the sinless one knows the force of the temptation in a way that we who sin do not. We give in before the temptation has fully spent itself. Only he who does not yield knows its full force. So Jesus understands the force of the force of the temptation better than we do because he did not give in. That's why it matters what the author of Hebrews said, that he's sinless. He doesn't give up or give in like we do when we face temptation. So my main question for you, do you want to be like Jesus? Do you want to sympathize like your Savior? Do you struggle with sympathizing with someone who's in their struggles? Do you struggle to get alongside of them when they're in, in a difficult season or having a hard time? 
what do you do if you've never gone through something that someone else has struggled with? You know, so by the grace of God, I've never committed adultery. I've never been a drug addict. I can go through a list of things that by the grace of God, I've never been through. And yet that person sitting in front of me actually is, is struggling with. What do I do to sympathize with them? So let's just take the example of a, a, a drug addict or a porn addict. You know, someone whose desires are overrunning their life. Now, I may have never been addicted to cocaine or pornography, but I know the experience walking in our kitchen. When I walk in the door, right there over the left on the counter are all the tasty treats. <laughs> Dreadful for me, especially all the chocolate desserts are sitting right up there. Why do they keep it in eye view? Why don't they pack it away? And as I'm walking in there, I'm thinking, oh, I really want a piece of that. Or you've been in a meal, and you know, you've had the entree. You had you know, two or three slices of pizza and then the salad. And I'm sitting there looking at my wife's homemade pizza. And I'm thinking, oh, I just want another slice or two. What's going to matter just another slice or two? What's speaking up? My desire. You know, I know with eating struggles what it's like to eat more than I should. I know what it's like when my desire says, I want more. Now, you know, I can't go to a drug addict and I say, I know what it's like for you to be overrun by your desires because I struggle with having extra ice cream. <laughs> That's a denigration of what they've gone through because drug addiction is a horrible thing. And my, my having a second scoop of Ben and Jerry's ice cream it's just not the same thing, is it? And yet, what do I need to do? I need to build a bridge, especially in the situations where I've never wrestled with the same problem. I need to come to understand how I wrestle with desires, not the same desires, and if I begin to understand that, I even give me a small window into the fact that desires can begin to overrun your life. It helps me begin to understand how I can start learning how to sympathize with someone. Because I can look at my own life and see the ways I struggle and understand that they have temptations that are not that far distant than mine. <laughs> because we're both human. Okay, the problem with assumptions. Based on our shared experience, the same Bible, same church, same language, same experiences overall, or because we know someone well, or because we have a shared history, we tend to make invalid assumptions and minister to people who exist only in our minds. When we assume, we don't ask questions. We end up counseling the person in our mind rather than the person that's sitting right in front of us. Assuming and not asking questions leads to misunderstanding and actually blunts our personal ministry with someone. So I love Paul Tripp's general principle on this. We don't tolerate assumptions instead of, we don't tolerate assumptions, instead we ask we always ask to test our assumptions. Be especially careful if you are intuitive. So if you're really good at relationships, you're naturally intuitive in figuring people out, that's in some ways even more dangerous because you can quickly then make assumptions about people. And so therefore, you got to check your assumptions to make sure they're valid in interacting with people. I listed there on your page a couple of ways to test our assumptions. We want to make sure our conclusions are valid before we offer them or even 
start doing life presuming that they're right. So first thing you see there, define. Ask people to define their terms. Ask them what they mean. So uh, a couple comes in and they say to me, we had a nuclear fight. Okay, I use that word nuclear. You have some things coming to mind right now. You, you think of it like it's a nasty fight. They were screaming at each other. They were slamming doors. Well, yes, my most passionate couples, they're doing exactly that. But now think of the introverted, reserved couple where nuclear is sitting across the table from one another, staring with one another with beady eyes. <laughs> so I got to ask them, what does nuclear mean? <laughs> I, I got to get them to define the term. Because what I think nuclear is may not necessarily be what nuclear is for them. Or get concrete examples. So th this is the, you know, Howard Cosell. Can I use that? I can use that with you. <laughs> you all know what I mean when I say that. Howard Cosell, blow by blow, play by play, overview. I get a couple if they come in and they, they say these generic things like, Oh, we, we had a bad fight last night and, you know, he was really mean to me and she was arguing with me. I'm like, all right, well, go ahead. Start from the very beginning and give me every detail you can. I want to know everything that happened, every, every bit of the conversation, every exchange. Why is it? It's like the DVD. I want, I want, to, I want to play the movie. I can't even say DVD anymore, can I? <laughs> I gotta change my illustrations. <laughs> it's like streaming Netflix. <laughs> I want to watch the movie. I want to see it play right in front of me. It's like surround sound in the movie theater. Like I want to feel the full experience of what they went through last night when they had the hard fight. Why is that? Because the generic phrases and terms, the generic statements they make, don't let me get into the deeper heart issues. It doesn't let me see the dynamics going on in the conversation. So I want concrete, specific examples as they explain to me what they went through. I don't want generic, general statements about what happened last night. That helps me to test all the assumptions that I'm making about them and how they handle conflict. And then explain. Ask people to explain why they responded the way they did uh, when they give you the specific examples. And then summarize. Summarizing is an excellent skill to adopt when you're talking to anyone. You know, they say A, B, and C. And so what do I do in responding to them? I say A, B, and D. And they go, no, 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 no. I said A, B, and C. And I said, oh, okay, A, D, and E. And they, no, 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 no. And we keep going back and forth. Until finally I say A, B, and C, and they go, you got it. <laughs> you finally got it. And why is that important? Because it communicates to them that I understand now. And that gets us one step, moves us one step forward in being able to have a more thoughtful conversation with each other. So, so I summarize what I'm getting rather than making assumptions what I think they're saying to me. So I summarize what they're saying. And then I test the hypothesis. So what is this? You know, I, having been a biology major, uh, formerly having trained in the sciences, you know, a hypothesis. I'm, I'm offering something to them. So there, there isn't a coffee table in my, my, my office. There's just a couch and then me sitting in the chair across from them. But I'll say something like, 
All right, so I, I think I have a sense of the dynamic here, but I want to offer this to you as a hypothesis, and, and I want to get you to reflect on what I think I see in, in what's going on in your relationship. So I'll do this. I'm, I'm working with a couple, and after a few sessions, I'm getting a sense of the dynamics of how things work in terms of especially how they handle conflict. And so I want to lay out the dynamic that I'm seeing. I want to articulate it for them to see if they agree with me. But I'm trying to offer it humbly. I'm trying not to come in as the expert, the authority figure, the one who's done this for years. Because I'm a sinner with a limited vantage point making, try, trying to make an interpretation. And they're sinners with limited vantage points trying to make interpretations. In an environment in love and grace, if we're all humble about it, we can come to something that's more accurate. And so that's why it's a hypothesis. I'm offering it to them and asking them to say, I'll say to them, okay, reflect on that. Give me feedback. Correct what I said. Adjust it so we can get a more accurate picture of what's going on. And in doing that, we arrive at something that's not just my assumption, but it's more accurate about what's really going on in the dynamics of their relationship with each other. So that's assumption, shifting gears. Now, let's think about how to ask questions. So if, if you're in that position of having that conversation, and you do want to draw out someone's heart and, and ask them the kind of things that helps them to think through something like Andrew did for that young guy making a decision, well, what could this look like? I want to offer you a couple of principles. And the first five or so are Paul Trippian. <laughs> Next five or so are Deepak Reguian. I don't know how to say that, <laughs> but you get what I mean. The first five are from instruments, and the other five are um, from things that I work through in our training at our church. So the first five, uh, early on in the conversation, you usually ask an open-ended question to let the person know you want to talk with them about the problem, like, how are you doing with the problem? Or if you're the pastor or counselor, how can I help you today? Something more general or open. Number two, you usually start on the front end of conversation by asking open-ended questions. Questions that cannot be answered with a yes or no. So if I asked a couple in front of me, how's your marriage? Is it good or bad? And the husband said, oh, it's pretty good. <laughs> well, that didn't give me much information, did it? <laughs> but if I asked them, Tell me about the state of your marriage and the struggles in the last month and how good or bad things have been and why they've been good or bad. Oh, okay, a lot more will begin to pour out. Or if I just say, tell me how things are going in your marriage. A nice, general, open-ended question. Most couples, especially seeing the counseling pastor, will take that as a cue. Okay, this is a time where we start pouring things out. A nice, open-ended question which gives them plenty of space to open up to me, rather than close-ended questions on the front end of a conversation. You want to leave it as open as possible for them in sharing with you. Then you use a combination of survey, overview questions, and focused questions. You know, you look at different areas of a person's life. Uh, you look at their work or their parenting or their, their um, relationships in church, and the survey and focus questions are looking at, are there different themes or patterns across these different areas of their life? 
more focused questions are more intimate questions about a particular part of their life. So, uh, I, you know, I was say, staying at the Fairfield Inn. You know, I got to the second floor, and you look down the hallway. My room was 213, and so I turned, and I saw the arrow. It said, go that away. And if, 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 say I walk down, and you know how housekeeping's cleaning up in the middle of the day. Oftentimes, they're moving in and out of different rooms. Let's just say there's a couple of rooms open up, and they're in and out, a couple of different rooms cleaning. And I could look in every room. What do I typically see? Usually the same kind of carpet, same painting on the wall, same furniture in each room. Well, let's just say that each of those rooms are a different aspect of your life. The parenting, finances, your work, your, uh, your relationships with your neighbors. Survey questions, I'm running up and down the hallway, peeking in each room, trying to identify different themes. So if you struggle with pride in your work, you're probably struggling with pride in your parenting. I'm going to see it in both rooms. Focus questions are me going into the parenting room, going over the carpet, staring at the corner of that carpet, and asking more direct questions about your relationship with your middle daughter. I'm, I'm actually drawing out a lot more specifics about that specific aspect of your life and that particular relationship. What do we need? We need a combination of both kinds of questions. We need survey questions to get an overview of their life and the different areas of their life, and focus questions to drill down into one particular area of their life. The combination of both help us. Number four, always remember that certain kind of questions reveal certain kinds of information. So the reporter questions. What uncovers basic information? Why? Purposes, desires, goals, and motivations. How often? Where? Reveals themes and patterns. And when? Reveals order of events. Ask a progressive line of questions. Uh, you want your conversation to actually have an order and logic and flow to it. Each question should be building upon another question. So when we do skills training, what I'll do is I'll pull three people and bring them to my office, and we'll do three meetings, you know, three weeks in a row at the same time, and they'll each rotate in playing the role of the counselor or uh, a counselee. It's a mock it's, it's, a mock com it's, a, it's, a, um, it's a mock conversation. It's not a real conversation. We're just doing it as practice. And I'll give the person who's a counselee uh, um, an overview of the problem in a descriptor beforehand, and they're role-playing. But the goal of this is for me to see how the person asks questions. And so literally, I'm sitting there. It's a little intimidating to have the counseling pastor watch you have a conversation but I am literally writing down every question they ask through an entire hour. And then afterwards, what we do is we go over, for example, was there a logic and flow with what you were asking? Because a lot of us just ask kind of, kind of popcorn questions. You know, you just kind of, one question pops out, another pops out, another pops out, and there's not really a logic and flow to what I'm doing. But when I ask something, I want to ask something, and the next thing I ask I want to ask it in a way that builds on what I just asked. And the next thing I ask, I want to build on the two things I just asked. There should be a direction that I'm heading in the way we're taking the conversation. Number six, I want to try to start by asking questions that evoke self-understanding and self-discovery. You draw them out by asking questions. Remember Proverbs 20, verse 5, uh, the purpose of man, the purpose uh, in a man's heart is like deep water. A man of understanding draws them out. And by asking questions, you're gently leading them down certain paths so that he or she can discover what to do. 
I, I think if you go at it where the, you help them to understand what they should understand by simply asking questions and leading them there where they need to understand what they should understand, what you're doing is you're helping them to embrace and own things. That's very different if I just told them what they need to know. If they, through sorting through their own heart and mind, discover what they need to understand, I think they come away with greater ownership of it. So the example I gave you of Andrew with that young guy. Andrew didn't say to him in the decision-making, you should go ahead and take this job for these reasons. He just kept asking him questions so the young guy could figure out through self-discovery and self-reflection what it is he really wanted in life. And if he did discover that, oh, I should take that job, he's going to have much greater ownership of that decision than if Andrew just simply told him, you should take that job. So that's where I want to start with. I want to start with the kind of question asking that helps them to begin to reflect on their own heart and discover it is what, it, what it is their desire is, what their motivation is, what they really want out of that situation. So my general star- strategy is to start with self-discovery. So example of a question, what is God doing in your life? And let them reflect on that. But if that doesn't work for any reason, I'm willing to go halfway there with leading questions. So where, where do you see God working in your life? Or let's say, where do you see God's mercy in this situation? So remember that first question, self-discovery, what is God doing in your life? The leading question is, where do you see God's mercy in this situation? What's the difference between the first one and the second one? Mercy. You know, that, that second question I inserted, where do you see God's mercy in this situation? I see mercy. <laughs> I'm not telling you there's mercy there, but I'm trying to help you begin to reflect on that and begin to think about the fact that there is mercy in your life. That's a leading question. But I'm trying to help them get there by asking it that way. Now, if the leading question doesn't work, that's when you tell them what they need to know. God's mercy is working in your life in this way. But you notice in my strategy, I don't start there. I don't begin by just simply telling them what they need to know. There are times I need to tell them. There are times I need to tell them, this is what you need to know. When, when do I feed them? Well, a couple examples. Well, when they distort truth or reality, I need to cor- and I need to correct them. Or they are so clueless, they don't know what to do. Or they're so deep in sin or blind by the, blinded by their sin, they need to be exhorted or redirected. Or they lack the insight or self-awareness into their own heart. You know that often is the case where they don't have insight into their own heart. When you ask them things and they keep coming back with, I don't know. You ask the deeper question, they say, I don't know. <laughs> And often that's a clue, oh, you haven't gone here before. You just don't have much insight into this. And so I need to lead you more carefully there and help you begin to reflect what's going on in your heart. Sometimes it could be laziness or they don't care. That's why they say, I don't know. They don't really want to go there. They don't want to do the the work it takes to go there. But sometimes it's a lack of self-awareness. 
They just don't know what's going on in their heart, and nobody's ever taken them there. Number eight, you want to ask questions. As you ask questions, you're trying for a balance of giving them freedom to roam, but also guiding the conversation. By asking a question, you are directing the conversation down a certain path and cutting off other possible pathways. And by doing that, you're creating fences for the conversation. So this comes, uh, a quote comes from uh, The Pastor in Counseling, the book I wrote with Jeremy Pierre from Southern Seminary. Listening well requires a delicate balance of allowing freedom to roam and keeping the person in the right field. We're all inclined differently. Some of us are inclined to be such passive listeners that we're never, we never interject with a helpful question to direct things. We may let the struggling person take the lead, and frankly, they don't know where to go. Others may be inclined to keep the conversation as efficient as possible by directing it with a strict agenda of directing questions. The person feels guided by the nose and probably less likely to give needed information. Listening in such a way that helpfully directs the conversation is a tough skill to master. Think of it in terms of fencing the conversation, but not leeching the person. You want them to feel the freedom to go where they want to <coughs> in, in the proper boundaries, but not forced along a specific path. Patiently listen and do not talk over the person, but at the same time, don't be passive. More than likely, you've got only an hour or so. If you let them talk about whatever they want at whatever pace they want, they will probably mention some useful things, but many less useful things. The key is to ask follow-up questions on pieces of information that will be useful to you. This is, to, this is showing them the fence without leashing them too tightly. An excellent follow-up question will both acknowledge the person's concern and direct the conversation toward the most helpful information in getting to the bottom of the problem. Number nine, different kinds of questions will be useful at different points in the conversation. So there, there are what we'd call data-collecting questions. They're just general questions that get to know a person's life. Questions about the problem, questions about their spiritual life, questions about the context. Then there are the heart-oriented questions that we talked about, the questions that shoot an arrow at the heart, that dig in, are more intrusive, and unearth the things that are going on in their heart. From the pastor and counseling, in order to ask good follow-up questions, you need to be clear about what kind of information you're looking for. We ask questions that direct us to heart issues, not just the superficial details. Ask questions that collect, asking questions that collect the superficial details on a person's life is easy. You need to do some of that, and it helps to get enough details about your friend's life to understand the larger context of his problem. But there is a danger in this. We are more prone to collect lots of factual data about his life than to ask questions that pursue any depth. Depth questions are heart-related questions. They are harder to ask because they're intrusive. They attempt to expose the most central part of who a person is. Pursuing a person's heart helps you to understand the thoughts, desires, cravings, motives that lie behind their behavior. It's not casual conversation. After you get a good understanding of the person, 
and the problem, you can also ask leading questions that are directed to help them to have more insight, like the question I asked a moment ago, how has God been merciful to you? You can ask reflexive questions that help them to think about their attitudes and feelings. So you see the example there. Counselee, my father hates me and my siblings don't want anything to do with me. Deepak, so, so, things, you, uh, so things have been hard. Counselee, Things have been hard for a while, and it feels like pain piles up on, onto pain and hurt, and it is never dealt with. Deepak, sounds a lot to me like you're growing bitter, but we've talked about this a lot. You're often not willing to look at your sin in these relationships. Counsel is silent. Deepak waits silently for a moment. Deepak, you're angry at your family. Or, or are you angry at God? Or both? Counselee, I'm angry at God. Deepak, are you blaming God for your troubles? Counselee, he's sovereign, isn't he? He brought this, not me. Deepak, this sounds to me that you're angry and bitter at God. Is that right? Where after you feel like a pastor or counselor has some sense that they need to change, then you ask questions that press for change. So, for example, in asking questions that confront and challenge a person, we ask questions like, how can you be more supportive of your wife? Or how are you going to protect against looking at pornography this week? Or how are you going to apologize to your boss? Or do you need to forgive your father? You see, it written into those questions are implicit the idea that you need to do something about it. There are things that you need to change in your life. And it doesn't give you the more generic question like, well, how are you going to change? It's the more specific question is, are you going to go ahead and forgive your father? And then number 10, you need to ask, uh, you, most people ask questions naturally and use common sense. But their strategy is haphazard. So for those of you who feel like, I'm not really sure how to do this, you want to adopt a question-asking strategy. Well, what do I mean by that? Some of you will know Paul Tripp and Tim Lane's How People Change. Uh, some of you have done training for CCF. You know the two trees diagram where they describe sanctification. You know, there, there's the heat of the situation. They have a picture of the sun. Then they have the, uh, the, um, the fallen tree, the, the, the bad tree, so the tree that's in bad roots and has bad fruit. Um, then it goes around to the cross uh, and the gospel, how it changes us, and the good fruit tree, the tree that's rooted in the gospel, rooted in godly heart issues that bears good and godly fruit. You're familiar with that diagram. Well, in my training, in the skills training, when I had uh, uh, those three people in my room, we had um, Katie Schlegel, who is a pastor's wife, in there, and she was the counselee asking the questions. And I, it was interesting, as I'm listening to her through the session and writing down all the questions that she's asking, I notice about a third of the way through, she's got a strategy. I don't know what it is, but there's a clear strategy in how she's moving through this conversation. So I asked her, Katie, what are you doing afterwards? 
And she said, well, you know the two trees diagram? I've so internalized it, I was just working my way through the diagram. That was brilliant. <laughs> so, you know, for those of you who think, I just, I just don't know what to do in a conversation. I don't have any kind of strategy. You know, that progressive line of questions that you said I need to take? I don't know where to go next. Well, you, there, there are a number of really good uh, how to change or general sanctification books that are now on the market. How people change just being one of them. And often they have these diagrams to capture the book in a picture, to capture the concepts in a picture. Well, what you want to do is you want to internalize some of these because it helps you think through a process, process of change for someone. And in, in a sense, it's like training wheels. If you're not sure how to do it, you need to adopt some kind of training wheels as you begin to learn to ride on the bike. And it might sometimes feel a little bit more forced and a little bit more structured, but the person doesn't need to know. <laughs> you might have the diagram internalized so well that you know, oh, okay, I'm at the heat, working through the bad fruit, working to the bad roots, we're going to get to the gospel, we're going to get to good heart, godly issues, we're going to see the good fruit of their life. And you work through that whole thing in order to help someone sort through their problem. So think through a question-asking strategy that'll help you put on training wheels to help you understand how to help someone else. So that's listening and asking questions. Basic things I wanted to give you in terms of thinking through that. Any questions you have about the stuff I've covered in this past 45 minutes? Hi, Deepak. There's a couple of scenarios. Let's say I'm meeting with a brother and our purpose for a meeting is just to have fellowship. So we're going to ask each other questions like, how's it going? How's your marriage? Are you struggling with this and all that? And, and the purpose is to hear each other out. But in a, in a scenario like what you're describing, where there it's actually a counselor, counselee scenario, uh, do you encounter situations where you're counseling someone, you're asking them these questions, and they fire back the same questions at you for one reason or another? Either they don't want to take the time to answer it and want to shift the focus to you, and... Uh, do you encounter that, and how do you handle it, as opposed to your meeting with a friend and kind of yeah. your... Yeah, and tell me your name. Levy. Yeah, Levy. I don't, I don't usually get people firing questions back at me. What I get is people, like, avoiding the question, so, like, stonewalling, or people, like, being more superficial in their answer, like they, I said earlier, I don't know, or, or, or the people maybe arguing about the situation all of which are ways to cover their heart and not have to be honest uh, with me about that. So, yeah, if, if it's pretty clear that someone's not ready to talk, and I'm, I'm asking all the kinds of questions I would ask to kind of get it opened up, then it, sh it shifts the conversation to m not, not particularly the problem, but then why do you not want to talk? Like, why aren't we getting anywhere? Are you ready? Are you ready to have the conversation that we need to? So it shifts focus on it. I, I guess there could be a scenario where somebody shifts to asking me questions in, in doing that, but I mean, in my role as the counselor, I've, I've, almost, I've almost never encountered that, unless they're asking for particular wisdom on something. And is the person avoiding you in the situation, or they just keep asking you questions they don't talk about themselves ever? My tendency is, if I did get that, because it doesn't happen that often, 
is to answer the question, but then do what you said. Okay, now back to you. <laughs> uh, and, and making sure that I keep it focused on them if the point is to work through especially a problem that they have. If that's the point of the whole conversation, we both know that, uh, I, I can work through why they, why they are not letting me open, why they're not letting me get them to open up and ask the kind of questions that answer the questions that I'm asking them to get them to open up. And if that doesn't get us too far, then, you know, you need to pull the lens either further back and think through like, what on earth is going on that you don't, because you, you in oftentimes you initiated to have the conversation. <laughs> so why aren't we going anywhere? So you can pull the lens back and think through it rather than thinking about the problem. I'm Vanita, and um, I have a question of how do we initiate or apply these principles if we have um, older children who maybe don't want our wisdom, but we feel that we have lots to offer in terms of this. So, how? Yeah, you know, in a certain sense, I, I, th I think I probably need to defer to Tom or others because my oldest is 17, so I'm not in that stage with the older kids, but I can say it as a pastor who parents... Uh, who shepherds a lot of 20 and 30 year olds who come in and talk to me about their parents all the time, uh, thinking about it. That's the vantage point that I have in, in, in thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, um, it's, uh, on, on the one hand, for me as a pastor, I'm telling them you need to honor and respect your parents. You need to listen to what they have to say. Um, and so you got the spectrum. You got the parents who are dying to say something uh, right, uh, and, and yet they're really patient in letting their kids come forward. And you got the parents who are running over their kids with what they're saying and what they think they should do. You just got a whole range in that sense. So yeah, it's different for every child. Some, some kids, you know, you can speak up even when they're not ready and they'll be okay. Some kids, you speak up and they're not ready for it. It's just going to put you in an awkward position with them. So it requires discernment about their personality and where you're at in the relationship. Uh, it requires humility and being patient because mutual respect, now that they're adult, and they're not underneath your authority anymore. So being prepared for them to make decisions that are different than you, that you don't necessarily like. It's different if they're making decisions that are catastrophically ruining their life. Then you need to speak up. But there are a whole bunch of decisions right in the middle <laughs> that are not ruining their life. They're not the wisest thing in the world, <laughs> but they're not the worst thing in the world. And they're clearly not the thing you prefer, <laughs> but it's clearly the thing that they prefer. So, you, you know, I, I, it's, uh, it's hard to have to step back and wait for them to ask for counsel. You know, the, the, the good thing is they, they often know most of your situations that you love them and you're committed to them. And they, they also know sometimes they remember years of you lecturing them. That's their childhood. Uh, so, you know, uh, I know it when one of my kids rolled their eyes and said, okay, here comes the speech. <laughs> and I have to check myself because I am ready to lecture them about what I think they did wrong. And I have to force myself to not be in a monologue and let it be a dialogue. And that just sets a much better pattern for them to be willing to talk to me. So I'd say you got to put yourself, figure out where you are in that range and also your history. You know, if you're used to lecturing them a lot, <laughs> then they're not going to be as open for you speaking up. If you're used to actually having a dialogue with them 
they're, they're probably more open to actually hearing it out because they know you're not going to just tell them what to do. Again, kind of the best I got since I'm not a uh, parent of adult children just yet. Ask me about 10 years, I'll have a lot more to say on that one. <laughs> Hello, my name is Kevin. Uh, is there a way that asking leading questions can be manipulative? And if so, how do you avoid that? Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. Sure. I mean, I, I hear spouses ask leading questions in session all the time. <laughs> you really do want to come home on time, don't you? <laughs> Uh, no, uh, no, I don't think I do in the way you're asking the question. Uh, I mean, I, there are certainly ways that you, you, you lead with manipulative questions. So you got to be careful of your heart motives. In the way you, if, if you're asking the question in a way to get them to do something or force them something, it's really just a backhanded way to tell them something. So you just need to be care, careful of the nature of the question and your heart that's behind it uh, overall. But if you're asking a question with a genuine motive, so my question to you all, when we're given that example, where do you see God's mercy in your life? I'm asking that as a pastor, wanting to say, God's working. <laughs> we just need to notice it together. Good question in the back. Good question. Hey, uh, my name is Sam. I just had a question regarding, I think, point eight, um, which was, how do you balance um, guiding someone in conversation, wanting to introduce them to uh, how God can work in their lives, and yet maybe they're more resistant to that and want to discuss more behavioral change things. And how do you kind of balance leading them deeper and yet also trying to help them with uh, more behavioral things that they would rather talk about? Yeah. Well, so, you know, I don't want to ignore the behavioral things. If they're bringing it up, it, it's, it could be that they're just more superficial. They haven't thought through the deeper things. It could be that, yeah, I mean, they don't know what obedience looks like. So I need to help them understand what it means for them in terms of their workplace or their relationship with their kid. What, what, what the practical, concrete steps are in, in doing that. But, you know, with, with what we talked about in that first hour, over here, the deeper level, I'm not going to be satisfied with just that conversation. I need to take the time to lead them in asking the heart-oriented questions that helps them to think beyond the behavior. I mean, we do this all the time with marriages. You know, we, I, can, I can give, I, I, I've done it long enough where I've got plenty of marriage communication techniques. I like the magician, reach in, pull another one out of the hat, and offer two in the session. <laughs> we can do a lot of behavior management if we want to, and I do. I mean, I do need to help husbands think about how to talk more thoughtfully with their wives. I need to help uh, different spouses, husband or wife, not to be so angry in their disposition towards their wife. Uh, I need to think, help them think about tone and the kind of gracious. I need to do all that, but I got to get at their heart, and so I lead them there. I, you know, everything I'm conveying is putting responsibility on you to take initiative. And then back away if it's too much for the person and be patient, but to take initiative. So if they stay at the behavior level, take them to the heart. That's the basic thing I would say. Okay, let's take a break. Uh, if you want to take five minutes, this is going to be a real five minutes. <laughs> Not a North Carolina ten minutes. Real five minutes. We'll back back here at 11:35.